everybody, and welcome back to Thank Godzilla. It's Friday. It is Friday. It is, isn't it? And that means it's Godzilla, gosh dang it. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. I write for the rap, I write for Slash Film. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I too am a critic. I contribute to Slash Film. Just wrote a review of the new Godzilla movie today. Oh, that's going to be, at this rate, the very last thing we review on this podcast. Godzilla minus one. Uh, I imagine they'll make more. There's all there's yeah. even the Godzilla TV series that's running concurrently. Sure. The American I, Godzilla TV I, series. I know they will make more mm-hmm. Godzilla movies, but and I'm sure after we complete this journey and we catch up to the most recent Godzilla movie, which by mm-hmm. the time we finish is probably Godzilla minus one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when there is a new Godzilla movie, we will do more episodes. Oh, absolutely, yeah. At least to fill in that gap. But, uh, but I've, I've the initial s- project, I suspect... I, I have uh, I've just watched movie. the new Godzilla movie, but we're not going to talk about it on this podcast. No, I'm going to tease not. it out. In fact, there's an embargo. Oh, shoot. Um, it opens Friday, and the embargo is on Saturday. So oh, that's weird. Yeah, they're not letting critics talk about this one until after it's out, at least in America. But in any case, if you want to hear Whitney's thoughts, or read, rather, Whitney's mm-hmm. thoughts on Godzilla Minus One uh, before anything before we get to talk about it on the podcast uh on the regular podcast mm-hmm. critically acclaimed uh you can go to slash film i guess on saturday that's right where you will read his review and it mm-hmm. will be glorious because he's a really good writer oh uh, pish we we <clears throat> we hit an interesting moment in mm-hmm. the journey of thank godzilla it's well, friday the podcast where we review every godzilla and godzilla adjacent movie well, this this is a bit of an intermission, I think. Yeah, it's we, a it's a catch up and it's an intermission. So we we completed what is considered the Showa era of uh, Godzilla, which is everything from the original Gojira mm. uh, to Terror of Mechagodzilla. It's a twenty year period. It's a twenty year period. A lot of Godzilla movies, quite a few Godzilla adjacent movies, ones like Rodan, Dogra, Space Amoeba, Mysterians. Uh, we, we wanted to be as completionist as possible, and we wanted to review any movie. There were some TV appearances that we're going to ignore, because that's just a whole different can of worms. Yeah, that would make it too too big a project. It, it's, it, then it becomes ridiculous. But Draw a line somewhere. Yeah, we, at some point we have to say, this is what we do and this is what we don't do. But what we said was that any movie that introduces a character or a monster who would later appear in a Godzilla piece of media alongside Godzilla... Mm-hmm. Canonically, we have to do that film. Yes, uh, that led us to do some films that are not necessarily considered very Godzilla y. Yeah, uh, films that are very tangentially related. Uh, but by God, Zilla. we wanted to review them. Thank you. We wanted to review them, and uh, we missed one. We're trying to do this all in chronological order, and we missed one. We missed one right at the beginning. That's right, and. Honestly, I, I don't feel too bad about missing it originally because the connection is maybe the thinnest of any connection we've seen so far. Uh, it, it, it's very thin, and we would actually maybe have done well to ignore it. <laughs> I don't, well, we we I wanted mean, an excuse to watch another uh, film directed by Ishiro Honda, so we decided yeah. just to sort of do it for our own edification. Well, the thing is that we had, we had technically the option. To yeah. ignore it. I mean, it's our podcast, uh, and uh, you know, we thought, okay, is anyone really going to care? Yes, <laughs> you absolutely did care, and not a lot of people, but a few mm. people, more than one, contacted us and said, "You missed Half Human. You missed it. You're going to do Half Human, right? Are you going to miss Half? You're going to you're going to go back. Mm. You're going to fix this problem." And 
Yeah, yeah, we are. The only question was when. Do we do it like at the end? Do we do it like right away when we realized our mistake? And we figured that the gap between the Showa and uh, the Heisei era. Heisei era, yeah. Uh, we figured that the, would be a good spot. Yeah, the, the Return of Godzilla in 1984. Yeah. It's a bit of a breather. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, so uh, what we have here is an early film from Ishiro Honda. Uh, it's called Half Human, and it is about the abominable snowman, a yeti, a big ape guy. Not... Godzilla size. Yeah. He, he's a monster, but he's like just quite tall. He's like Harry and the Hendersons tall. Yeah. Like unusually tall, he's, but not gonna rampage through a city knocking down buildings. He's a Yeti. He is. It's, it's a Yeti movie. Hmm. Uh, and what is the connection to Godzilla? There is, there is one moment... In one comic book. <laughs> a comic book. It's a comic That's book. That's the connection. It's a comic. By God, there is a comic book in which the Yeti from this movie appears in one panel. Just sort of peeks around a corner. Yeah. Let me see there if I can... There it is. It happened. It's canon. I'm going to see if I can try... I meant to track this down and see if I can uh, find it. I don't even know if there's any dialogue referencing it. Half-human Godzilla. <laughs> oh, my God. We're well prepared. Oh, yes, yes. Well, usually... Usually yes, not necessarily. Uh, I I will if I can find the if I can find the panel, uh, I will uh, share it on our social media when I post the uh, episode. Um, that's it though. It's like one little reference, an Easter egg at most. By God, uh, and uh, and uh, that's enough. It's thin. <laughs> it's thin. There's even you might you might argue uh, some plausible deniability that it's even the same. Uh, Yeti, but I'm pretty sure it is. Uh, it it very well may be. Maybe it's not. Uh, more than anything, I just wanted to see the Yishiro Honda Yeti movie, so mm-hmm. this is as good an excuse as any. Ah, here we go. It's from an issue of Godzilla colon Rage Across Time. Wow. There's a good a, title. It looks out from a cave. It's in the very first issue uh, as the characters are approaching a temple, and it's just... Yeah, there he is. He's in a cave. Mm. He's looking out, and it's definitely the same guy. He's got like the same bald head. Okay. Yeah. The def- the looking at it now. Now mm. that I've seen the film, there was it was clearly a reference. Right. It's a, it's a it's an Easter egg, but it's clearly a reference. So um, yeah, and uh, the connection may be thin. The actual like aesthetic thrust is very very different. Mm. Um, the oh, way, it's, it's much more of a horror movie. Yeah, Ishiro Honda, when he directed these these uh, kaiju movies, he was do- making big genre entertainments, yeah, grand filmmaking, yeah, so, and yeah. So yeah, he has you know the, the actors in the suits stomping on the miniature sets, but there mm. there's also like um, there's an like kind of, kind of well, I was gonna say like a, a theatrical quality yeah. to uh, the human stories as well. Yeah, everything's they, on a everything, very large yeah. scale. This is very natural. Mm-hmm. It's very. Um, high concept because it's told mostly in flashback mm-hmm. uh it's yeah like you said it's like a horror movie it's about these characters who are disappearing in the mountains and there's this monster stalking them through the snow yeah uh, and it's actually kind of downbeat and slow paced it's very unlike the other mm-hmm. ishiro honda movies i've seen no it it has a few themes that i feel uh would become increasingly relevant in the godzilla mold the way that uh, different types of people respond to the existence of a monster. Mm. And we see a lot of different... There are people who worship it. There are people who want to exploit it for financial gain. There are people who are only interested because 
they were accidentally roped into this strange tale. There are people who want to study it because they're scientists. Uh, the idea of a monster as a bit of a Rorschach test mm. uh, is, I think, something that comes up time and time again in a lot of these monster movies. Because a lot of different monster movies are about people wanting to do different things with the monsters. We're going to use the monster uh, to build an amusement park. We're going to use the monster to conquer the world. We're going to use the monster because we want to study it. We're going to use the mm. monster uh, uh, as an excuse to pull off a heist. All of these things have been done. Uh, but here, yeah, it's much more dour. And this really does have a much more um, kind of a seedy early 1930s monster like crime movie. movie. Yeah, crime. yeah. Well, it feels more like a, a crime drama. In some respects. It's a just, crime well, drama. It's, in got, that, it's got in a the, safari element to yeah, it. Uh, just know, like the, the early Tarzans. There's like a, a group of like criminals. And it's... Mm. And it, it feels like... Uh, humanity has fallen yeah. in this movie. Just like there's no redemption for any of these characters. There's anybody who's good is going to be punished for their goodness. Yeah. There's an, the ending of the movie is really dour in a way. I was not expecting. There's a certain character who dies and I was like, it's a little bleak in it. Yeah, yeah. I was like, what did they do? Did they karmically deserve that? No, it's just really depressing, isn't it? This is not a heroic monster movie. This isn't even a gigantic monster movie. This is a small, angry monster movie. Yeah. Uh, it is interesting. Uh, it is also not officially on home video. In yeah, a we, we had to dig around to find it. We had to it. dig around to find this one. It is, uh, apparently, uh, the movie is um, uh, considered offensive, uh, by by uh, by various people because there is an element of the film uh, where uh, you know the Eddie lives in the mountains and there is a small uh, village mm-hmm. that has been living in the mountains for many many years like generations and they worship the Yeti and they're not nice people and indeed it's implied uh, that their family tree doesn't fork very much oh, yeah. Uh, and that's considered very offensive. Uh, and apparently they just don't release it. <laughs> they just, they've <laughs> thought about it a couple of times and it's just considered, I, I, it's, it's just considered like an offensive stereotype I, of I certain guess so. There's, groups, you know? I, I wasn't sure what, like, if it was playing in any sort of like cliches or like any stereotypes there is i'm just yeah wasn't familiar with what they were talking about all i saw was backward village of distant people the same way you might think of the family from the texas chainsaw massacre but and and to be fair the family from the texas chainsaw massacre is also a very offensive sort Mm -hmm. of stereotype of people in the south and Uh, there is a large subgenre of American cinema about urbanites, often from yeah, the go, north, going into the country and getting murdered by the monsters who live out in the woods. Yeah, it's like or, or people just have rural lives. Yeah, it's 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 a weird it's it's weird that we don't talk about this on that level very much. But yeah, mm-hmm. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Two Thousand Maniacs, Deliverance. There's a weird sort of us versus them anxiety there that I think some of the better films in the genre address, like Two Thousand Maniacs. Uh, which, mm. you know, I, it's not necessarily a high-quality film, but at least has a lot to say oh, about the it's, sort it, of the scars left over after the Civil War. It, it is a classic. That's, oh, yeah. that's Herschel Gordon-Lewis, 2008. Yeah, it's it's bleak, and it is very low-budget. 
Uh, it is, however, very good. Oh yeah, <laughs> I really yeah. do like that movie a lot. But um, so but apparently in this movie there is a very specific reference in the dialogue, and neither you or I are fluent in Japanese, so I'm sure we missed this. Uh, of that that reference that that village is of a certain real life group, okay. and as a result that is considered offensive. All right, got uh, it. so that sucks. That's unfortunate, and a lot of uh, older movies. Uh, have a lot of uh, uh, elements that were probably not very well examined at the time, or flat out included to be racist, like on purpose. Like yeah. on purpose. Like there's, a, it was it was a more racist time just in general in the world. It is still a racist time. Well, it is say, still a. It may be more open in media at the very least. That's what yeah. I mean, and I I'm, and I guarantee you that you know if we continue to progress as a society. 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the line, movies that we consider to be relatively uh, progressive, uh, now, progressive yeah. or at least not terribly harmful, we we'll, might look back on and go, oh shit, yeah, we did not yeah. know enough and we were assholes. And that's something oh, that we yeah, just have to deal with. It's the, it's the the Silence of the Lambs phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, where there's, it's a film made with a lot of quality, but it also has well, a lot it, to reckon with. Uh, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of quality. And at the time, uh, a lot of uh, people consider it not progressive, but at least sort of striking in its addressing of uh, trans experience. Well, at the uh, time, and, everyone was really focused on how much it had to do with uh, feminism. Mm, and yeah, yeah. all of those elements of the film are generally hold up rather well, except for its depiction of a trans character, which the movie tries to say isn't a trans character. Tr- tries they, to walk it back, but but, yeah. it, but not very effectively. And unfortunately, yeah. it, it left a lot of really really bad impressions on people who didn't know enough about it and didn't know enough to challenge the film's uh, uh, rather narrow view. Yeah. In any case, uh, Half Human, it's, again, Story of a Yeti. It's about a group of kids uh, who go on a New Year's skiing holiday. Uh, they get separated in an avalanche. And a couple of them end up in one cabin and a couple mm. of them end up in another. And... When the avalanche is... And you've already covered, like, 20 minutes of movie. Like oh, yeah. there's, a, there's a lot setting all this stuff up. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of screwing around <laughs> at the beginning. It, it starts really slow, actually. Well, it starts with a, a, a reporter... It starts going... with a group of reporters talking about the events of this movie. Yeah, so they're, they're interviewing the people. This is all people flashback. People. Everything's yeah. done with. They, they walk up to a bunch of people, and they look really, really depressed. They've clearly been through a lot. Various people are injured, and they say, okay, tell us what happened. And then they do. Uh, and then they screw around on a skiing holiday for a while. Mm. Like we went skiing. We got and separated. The, there was an avalanche. Mm. And when the avalanche uh, cleared, we went to the other cabin to see how our friends were doing. And it looked as though they had been attacked. Many of them were mm. dead. And one of them was missing. And, uh, and there was the, mysterious fur on the on the location. Sure, there they, were they giant fun, footprints. Like, yeah, tough, tough to fur. Yeah. Um, one of them is Akira Takarada, mm. who um, we've seen in multiple Godzilla films. Yeah. Um... So now there is suspicion that there is a large animal of some kind, a mysterious animal. They they give the fur to a scientist, and the scientist says, this material, this, this hair, is not native to any animal known in Japan. Yeah. Uh, so we must go expedite. We must go on an expedition. And some people are there to search for the animal. Some people are there to search for the missing skier who, for all they know, might still be alive. It's 
getting a little implausible, but it's possible. Mm. We definitely want to at least and, find and the body. If well, else. and that's that's sort of like that ticking clock element that we need to find these people when mm. it, it feels like everybody's dead already. Well, they stay and wait that, till the sort spring of le- thaw. It's been yeah, months. It's, 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 they're trying to like, oh, this is a fun ski holiday, but everything feels like it's already over. Feels like really there's bleak. death hanging in the air. There's a bit where they're trapped in the avalanche, and the characters who survive, we we stay with. We never see the characters who die. Um, they're just waiting it out, and they know that like, okay, this avalanche hit. Our friends are over there. That's probably where the avalanche hit. For all we know, they're dead. And there really isn't a moment where they seriously consider going out in the storm to rescue them because they would die. Or at the very least, they would get lost and not find them because it's a snowstorm on a mountain big enough to cause an avalanche. I'm not saying that's not pragmatic, (laughs) uh, but there is a certain element of, I mean, we'll, we'll check on them tomorrow. If they were in trouble, they'll be dead. <laughs> That's just the thing we'll have to deal with. Usually you have in a movie um, a couple of characters debate a course of action because uh, the audience might have different reactions, and yeah. different things they would want to do in that situation. Uh, the filmmaker might have a certain perspective, a type of behavior they want to see uh, shown or rewarded or punished. Uh, but... Oftentimes, you just want to cover your bases. And so having a character, even if they're dismissed as overly emotional or not very practical, someone say, we should go out and save them. Mm. And then you have, you know, someone with a lot of experience in these matters. We we can't do it. You'll die out there. Yeah. Yeah. And then you go, okay. But at least we thought of it. They they talked about it for a second. the, The moral imperative occurred to us, and then we had to be talked out of it because it isn't actually a good idea. But without really bringing it up in a serious way, it has a very different tone. Yeah. <laughs> and it comes across really bleak. It's really weird. Um, but yeah, they do go and, the next day. And that could Everyone... just be sort of a, maybe, hmm. maybe just a cultural thing. You yeah, know, this maybe. idea of what what is practical, what is pragmatic hmm. for an American hmm. might be different for a Japanese audience in the 1950s. And that's true for any era, any culture, any country as well. And that's fair. That's totally mm-hmm. fair. Um in any case, yeah, everyone's dead there. It's a big mystery. It's got it's got kind of the thing from another world, mm. uh, uh, the thing vibes, where it's like, okay, well, here's this snowy yeah. place where everyone's dead, and it's a mystery, and there's a mystery monster out there. Uh, but yeah, they wait for the spring thaw. They venture forth. They bring a zoologist. They bring some students. Uh, and they're going to search for this mystery monster, and they're going to search for their friend. Meanwhile, uh, Carrie Elwes from Twister... <laughs> it follows the, the, them. Well, it, the evil capitalist version of the expedition is yeah. following in their footsteps, and, trying and to snipe their their whatever they find. So and, like, and they're we'll like find a, the monster, and they're first. like a freelance criminal element. Like it's not, eh. they're not just like Cariel was from Twister. Like Cariel was from Twister. If he actually like broke people's legs in order to get what he wanted, like well, what they say, they, they they toss a guy into a ravine in this do. movie. They, there's a uh, this is the part where it started to feel a lot more like a Godzilla movie because there's a, a lot of Godzilla movies. Like, uh, or even Mothra when they like the the American Russian agent tried mm. to steal the peanuts. Oh yeah, yeah, and you know use them for a musical group and sell tickets. Um, this kind of capitalist exploitation is what's going on here. So the villains of the film, or these particular villains, because there's more than one, uh, 
they have caught wind of this expedition. They're following along in the hopes that they'll get lucky, find it first. And they say that they're like an actual legit organization. They are the uh, OBA Incorporated, the leading animal dealer in Japan. And they want to find the monster and guess what? Put on a show. What, later on in the film, when they actually do capture it briefly, they yeah. say, we're going to go on a tour of America. The, because they, taking yeah, a giant ape really... to America never goes bad. <laughs> Which, you know, it's a joke. It's a riff on King, King Kong. Of yeah. course it is. But, um, but yeah, those are clearly the bad guys. And they're going to do really, really bad things. Um, the first leg of the expedition is kind of interesting pacing-wise because... It's a lot of trudging. It's actually not a lot of incident mm. at this point in the film. It's just walking, walking, walking. And it should be really boring, but it's actually not. It's got this kind of Blair Witch vibe where it just feels like, wow, they're really out in the middle of nowhere now. Mm. Like they're completely isolated from society. And there's this very, uh, nature doesn't feel very welcoming anymore doesn't necessarily feel more, terrifying. Uh, it just feels like they're just completely uh, on their own. I wonder where they shot this movie. Hmm. Like, did they go to a remote location? I, probably, I don't know. I, I, I'm I sure some guess, of it's on a sound I'm guessing not. Really, it's yeah. pretty, you know, these are pretty low budget. Yeah. Uh, uh, Honda, yeah, it, he shot in, in Tokyo. Yeah. It's just yeah. shot in the middle of the city. You know, if, you can, if, you're, if you're clever enough, you can make anything look like anything. Oh, Cecil yeah. B. DeMille said that you can shoot anywhere in the world in California. Yeah. yeah. You know, just nowhere to go. You can get any environment you need in California. Uh, and I'm sure that's true for Japan and a lot of other places as well. Um, they start looking. They see mysterious things. Oh, there's a bear that died under mysterious circumstances. What could have done that? Uh, and they realize that in order to continue their journey, they have to go to this mysterious valley, and now all of their guys are like, oh, We no. don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> we don't go to that valley. But we brought you here because it's going to be a long, difficult journey. And if we knew you were going to that valley, we would not have come. We are fucking out of here. And of course, all of the students, because they haven't invented like Friday the 13th movies yet, are saying like, oh, well, we'll be fine though, right? Sure. What can possibly go wrong? Yeah, yeah. yeah come on. They, so what if they call it Blood Valley? <laughs> the Valley of the Hell Beasts. The valley in which mild-mannered students never survive. Surely it's, us, mild-mannered students, will be fine. It's okay to make out here. It's okay for us to let our guard down, even for a moment. <laughs> um, so this doesn't go well. Oh. Uh, one of their number gets uh, separated and... He's found by... By the Yeti. He's <laughs> found by the capitalists. Mm. And and the, and the capitalists beat him up. <laughs> they beat the crap out of him. They kidnap him. It's it's really uh, o- bad. O- Oba is the, uh, yeah. the, char- the, the capitalist character's name. Yeah. Uh, the uh, He ends up being rescued by this lady who we met earlier in the film. Mm. She At first, she's very silent. And you think maybe she can't talk. Uh, but uh, it turns out she can. She's, oh, is she, is she the one with the Yeti? Like, we already saw the Yeti briefly. There was a very brief moment where yeah, we saw the Yeti. There's, where, there's a moment where the Yeti kind of like... Like reaches in through a window and grabs her face. Okay, there's two women in the movie who are prominent mm. characters. Uh, one is a young woman who was on the skiing trip yeah. who is trying to find her friend. That's a character who the Yeti like just walked past her tent. You see the silhouette. A creepy hand comes through mm. the, the little window of the tent, kind of brushes her. She screams, ah, the Yeti runs away. It's a near miss. 
There's also a woman who uh, is definitely, like, she lives on the mountain. Mm. She's clearly a mountaineering expert. She's very capable. Uh, and at the beginning of the movie, we see her in the cabin. She runs into everybody, and it's like, oh, hey, do you want to, uh, do you want to, do you need to spend the night here? And like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and so she will clearly be important later. And she, like, she rescues the guy, uh, and she brings it back to her village. And it's a village full of assholes. <laughs> Uh, and they're like, how could you bring this guy to the village? As they they managed to get her aside by saying, hey, our god hasn't had lunch yet. Would you mind <laughs> going to feed our god? And the god is the Yeti. Yeah. They, they call him their lord, but basically he's their... their and, uh, and, the Yeti, and the Yeti, we finally get like a few mm. good, clear shots of the Yeti at this yeah. point in the movie. And the design of the Yeti is pretty scary looking, because... Yeah. It, it's uh, it's an actor wearing like one of those half masks where mm. uh, we see their eyes, but their mouth is like a monster mouth. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's sort of like a bald head, so it lo- looks kind of human. Yeah, half human, I guess. Uh, ah. So it it doesn't look like you know the big teddy bear thing from uh, Twilight Zone, like the gremlin on the wing of the plane. No, no, um, it's made like, to look intimidating. It, it doesn't yeah. look like. They're going out of their way to make it look intimidating, but it does look intimidating. Yeah, yeah. it's 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 a good monster design. Yeah, it's probably it's pretty um, solid. For and, the, and I could see that thing being like ninety feet tall, fighting a Godzilla. Yeah, there was actually a publicity still that they made uh, because this movie was made around the same time as Godzilla Raids Again. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was and, the one they rushed into production, by the way. Yeah, this was uh, the one Ishiro Honda was working on instead of a Godzilla sequel. Yeah, uh, but you know there was still there was still Toho, so. Uh, they did a publicity still of this ape monster and Godzilla because on the set they're the same size. Mm. And so it's just them looking like, ah, we're going to fight each other. Ah, it's fun. You know, trying to sell their uh, Yeti movie as well as their Godzilla movie. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, that's the closest they've ever actually come to fighting. Uh, she takes the guy back to her village. The villagers uh, send her off to feed the Yeti. Uh, it turns out the Yeti has a child. That's right. Which is a bit, which is a big revelation. We didn't know that yet. The, uh, the Yeti child. Did you ever watch uh, Land of the Lost? Yeah, it looks the, like a yeah. Land it of looks the Lost, like yeah. yeah. Um, Chaka. Yeah, it's the name of the the cave creature from Land of the Lost. Land it looks the, like Chaka. Land of the Lost was a weird fucking show. It was very cheap, but it had mm. big ideas and like. Oh, it was really like super psychedelic. That show. It was super psychedelic, and it was about like these people, and they were like lost on like a mysterious place full of dinosaurs. But it wasn't just ancient. There was also like mysterious alien was, yeah. artifacts and things and it's like glowing stones that have magical qualities and boots yeah. that could time travel like it, yeah all kinds of stuff it really does feel like there's like a good serious reboot of that to be done mm. someday it'll probably end up feeling a lot like lost because lost has a lot of land of the lost vibes just without <laughs> nice. the actual monsters yeah. um but uh yeah, did you ever see that Will Ferrell movie they did? No, I, I just watched. I just watched the TV show. Not as, as bad as you'd think. Okay, it's, it's, it's not great. But it's I know Sid and Marty Croft like oversaw it, like yeah. they approved of it. No, no, it's 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 not terribly disrespectful of the original material, which I think is good. Mm. Um, anyway, uh, yeah. So while she's gone, the villagers they they loom over the guy, and when she comes back, he's gone, uh, and she says, "Hey, what the hell?" And her grandfather starts beating her in public, which is mm. really dark. And then when we find well, this isn't like the village. You say it's a village of assholes. This yeah. is like the yokels, like the the inbred yeah. characters. Exactly. And again, that's it, it's presented in an offensive way, but they're supposed to be not nice people. Uh, 
when we finally cut to the guy, they, I thought they just killed him, like, mm. off camera. No, they tied they, they him did, up and they, and they threw they dangled him. him off of a cliff. It's just, <laughs> and it's actually a really scary shot to get a really good sense of, like, the height mm. and, like, how precarious and helpless this guy is because it's, like, it's like this weird, like, outcropping of rock, like, where there's nothing underneath it, and he's just dangling there, and he's just, like, he's kind of, he's really given up on trying to get out of this mm. because there's nothing he can do. He's just like, well... This is how I go. <laughs> Just starve to death here. And then the Yeti shows up. And it's like got like an animal over its shoulder. Like it just killed it. It's going to take it back to its uh, uh, cave. So I guess lunch wasn't good enough. Uh, <laughs> and then he sees this rope. And he pulls up the rope. And then he just leaves. The Yeti does, yeah. And so you're saying to yourself, oh, okay. So the Yeti isn't an inherently evil creature. It's and I, I was a little unsure as to how intelligent it was. Like it has animal yeah. intelligence. Yeah. Like like maybe a primate. Yeah, it understands there's something at the end of another yeah. thing. Uh, is it? It doesn't want to make friends. It doesn't stick around. No. It's almost like it was curious. Found out. Oh, there's a guy at the end of that. Mm. I don't really care. <laughs> well, <laughs> it just oh, leaves. Oh, one of those. Yeah. I've, I've yeah. seen these humans before. Pass. It's like um. It's like when my cat like bugs us for like, hey, what you eating? Yes, you guys want? Can you give me some food? And then we're like, okay, I guess here's a little piece. And then they're like, no, we don't want that. Pass. So your, cat, cats, your cats are like yetis, is what yeah, you're a saying. A little bit, yeah, yeah. A, little, a little bit like monsters. I, I do love yetis, by the way, just oh, in yeah. general. Yeah, as a as a as a cryptid. Yeah, yeah, yetis, Bigfoots, mm-hmm. uh, Mothman, Jersey Devils, all that. I, lo- I love all the American just cryptids from around the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Yetis are a, a big part of subgenius lore. Mm-hmm. This idea that true subgeniuses—that is, the the weird ones among us—have yeti blood, going way back to early times. I mean, we probably all have blood going way back to early times. I suppose so. <laughs> I mean, I, technically, I, I've had blood since day one. Frankly, <laughs> I was born with it. Um. Anyways, that guy gets rescued for a bit. Um. This lady's in trouble with her whole village. Uh. And she, Dante, are you okay, buddy? <laughs> Just being a clumsy cat over He's there. He's a clumsy cat. Uh, meanwhile, uh, this lady runs into the capitalists, and they say, "Oh yeah, that guy you you rescued. He's one of ours. Mm. He's our buddy. Oh man, this is so great. Hey, have you got any Yetis we can kill?" And she's like, "Um, no." But uh, it all goes real bad, real fast. They kidnap like the Yetis kid, and then it's yeah. like that's that's not good. Uh, and then no, they kidnap the wait. Did they kidnap the Yeti's kid or they kidnap the Yeti first? They kidnap the Yeti first. Okay, and, so they, but they end they, up killing the Yeti kid. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So like they they I think what happens is I think they briefly at, capture the Yeti kid. The Yeti goes off to find it, and then they drop a net on it and they chloroform the, yeah. the big Yeti, uh, and then they put it in a truck, and then the kid Yeti jumps on the escapes, truck. Yeah. yeah, he escapes. He jumps on the truck. He tries to rescue its 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 dad. Um, and then they both escape. Uh, there's some pretty cool stuff that happens in this truck chase where it's like... The Yeti starts killing guys. Oh, killing a lot of guys. Yeah. Like, there's this one really bit... There's one guy, though, who had, who brought it on himself because there's like, a, there's like a small caravan of trucks, like three trucks. Uh, the Yeti's on the first one. Uh, and then when the Yeti breaks out, kills the drivers, uh, the truck behind that guy, instead of just braking like you would do, he decides... While on a narrow mountain road, 
<laughs> to break and swerve. The road is maybe eight feet wide. <laughs> I'm not sure what you thought swerving would do for you exactly, except send your truck careening off of the cliff, which it does, and he dies horribly. And they have like little action figures or rag dolls that they just throw off with them, just to, so you know the person is dead. Um, the Yetis, yeah, they start killing people, they throw more trucks off the thing, and then uh, the main villain shoots the kid Yeti. Yeah. It's pretty pretty fucking grim is <laughs> it's what pretty, it is. pretty fucked up, actually. So, as you can imagine, the main Yeti, super fucking pissed, starts killing everybody, throws that guy off. There's actually a neat early, like, it doesn't quite work, but it's impressive as, like, an early experiment composite shot where the Yeti picks up the main bad guy. But oh, it's, of, it's it's the weirdest effect. Yeah, it's like, it, you can tell that, like, they thought maybe this would look cool and then they found out it didn't, but they mm-hmm. were stuck with it because instead of just, like, having, like, a really big guy in a Yeti suit pick up another guy or using a cable and just mm-hmm. lifting that guy off the ground a little bit, you know, with an assistance of something off camera. Yeah, they used a photographic effect. Yeah, so the Yeti is just standing there with its arms yeah, up, yeah. like, M- lifting M- something. Miming as if it's picking up a guy. And then they used, like, a composite effect to add a guy into the foreground so that mm-hmm. looks kind of like the Yeti's doing it. Yeah, like, they shot him against a green screen and it, yeah. it's, like, jerky movement. It, it doesn't uh, look right. No, it, you, no, no. I, I, I was reminded of sub, suburban Sasquatch, like yeah. a, a really, yeah, like fifty dollar video kind of, toaster type yeah, thing. Yeah, like, and again, I respect the experiment. If the experiment doesn't work, sometimes it's better to have a backup <laughs> <laughs> because you're then you're stuck with it. And there's mm. like a lot of films that are like from an early era of various visual effects, like a lot of the early CGI visual effects movies uh-huh. look very bad. They didn't look oh, yeah. great at the time, but at least there was a novelty factor. Uh, a lot of those movies were just like, oh my god. We thought this was okay. Yeah, we thought yeah. Reptile in Mortal Kombat looked pretty cool. <laughs> I was going to bring up Reptile. Reptile in Mortal Kombat looks embarrassing. And he looked embarrassing at the time, but we were way more forgiving because it was new. Yeah, I, I remember, uh, I think it was when... The Scorpion King came out. It was oh, like 2000. Yeah. No, no, no. It was uh, uh, The Mummy Returns because that was the first appearance of The Scorpion King. Oh, that, there yeah. you go. Where yeah. um, that movie had a, a climax where uh, The Rock appears. Yeah. Dwayne Johnson's in the movie, but by the end of the movie, he's been mutated into a giant scorpion monster. It's where like it's a just, scorpion centaur. Where, like, the, yeah, the it's like his, his face Dwayne and Jones. torso is human, but he's got like pinchers and a, yeah. an insect's back half, and that's all CGI. Yeah, uh, and it looked. It looks terrible. Like, yeah, 1999, 2000, that movie came out. It was, like, yeah. really awful looking. No, it was bad at and the I time. Remember, Everyone uh, hated it at the time. I remember Roger Ebert's review of it. He's like, we've talked a lot about how good special effects are getting. We really need to start a conversation about how bad they're getting. <laughs> Just leaning on these, like, hmm. new toys didn't make special effects good. Yeah, the, the, the irony, of course, is that it's only by making mistakes that you get good. Uh-huh. You know, you have to try things out, find out what doesn't work, and then eventually things get better. That's true. The downside is that you're still stuck with the things that didn't work. Yeah. And, and I appreciate it. It's ironic to me sometimes that, like, filmmakers will, like, go back and want to, like, fix their older movie visual effects. Obviously, George Lucas call, is call the prime Freakin, yeah, yeah. Well, Freakin doesn't really do visual effects, but yeah. Uh, but, like, think of George Lucas. George Lucas went and redid the Star Wars original trilogy. Yeah. And he added a lot of newfangled visual effects in the 90s. Ironically, as, as far as I'm concerned, 
those visual effects have aged more badly than the effects from the 70s. Yeah. In the 70s, they were using effects that they... Some of them they were pioneering. Mostly it was stuff that they'd figured out how to do and knew how to do really well. I'm not saying there aren't a couple of things that he cleaned up that I'm not, like, offended by. Mm. But, like, all that CGI... Those, like, CGI X-Wings look worse than the practical X-Wings. In that era, at least. Like, nowadays, yeah, fine. They look fine in the new Star Mm. Wars movies. But at the time... But they've kept on doing it. And kept on... In the original special edition yeah in, in 97 uh, if you weren't around they they redid star wars yeah. they retitled it they re-released it in 1997 mm-hmm. with yeah. new digital special effects a yeah. couple complete, of deleted scenes yeah they yeah. Uh, yeah, added in a couple de- deleted scenes they, and they added new cgi effects for certain sequences and mm. it was it was fun it was yeah like like you novelty. said it was considered a novelty but uh it it didn't improve the movie no, none of those additions improved the movie the the the, the jarring contrast is really distracting a lot of the time between Mm. the older practical effects and the newer fantastical effects. And again, those newer effects were in their infancy. Mm. They don't hold up as good. Yeah. They just don't. Uh, That's weird. So I appreciate, obviously this movie has not been curated and protected very well because again, the people who made it are, uh, are embarrassed by it. Uh, but at the release, this is like preserved and no one's screwed with it. So we just see this like moment where Ishiro Han is like, what if we did this? Let's give that a try. Oh, let's never do that again. <laughs> <laughs> it did not work, but it's fun to look at. Um, the Yeti is furious and he starts rampaging through the village, just taking out his anger on all of the villagers. All of them die. It's really violent, too. It's really it's, violent. Oh, I, uh, I was reminded of... Um... Like Quentin Tarantino movies, where it just mm. just orgy of violence at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's like, a very, yeah. there's a lot of bleakness to it. Um, I forgot to mention uh, when they uh, kidnap when when the bad guys reach that village and they kidnap one of the Yetis. Uh, our heroine's grandfather, the abusive guy who runs the village, uh, tries to stop them, and he gets shot. Mm-hmm. And he's, he doesn't die until later, but he's dying, clearly. And as she's, like, cradling him in her arms, uh, this guy who clearly treated her very, very badly and never loved her, she's cradling him in her arms. And, like, they aren't his last words, but they could have been. And he says, this is all your fault. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, what an ass. So he dies in this whole melee. Uh, and at this point... We finally cut back to those students. We just we, yeah. let them go for like forty-five minutes. They're not. A, they're really not. Well, they are important, but they're not. I, I mentioned before when we were watching some of the earlier Godzilla movies how um, both Ishida Honda and Akira Kurosawa, who worked together mm-hmm. and they were friends, were very talented at doing this. They were good at making entire crowds of people mm-hmm. into singular characters. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not something you see a lot in uh, most cinema, in fact. No, uh, the, no. The idea a lot of filmmakers aren't like, good at that. Si- yeah, singular figures have to be the main characters rather than a whole group. And I feel that way about Half Human. Uh, Oba is the name of sort of the, the evil capitalist. And yeah. He has like some close-ups and some lascivious. There's a, a guy who's like hanging off the cliff. He's like a little bit more of a hero. Mm-hmm. But more than anything, it's a group of capitalists as a character. Yeah. The only singular character is the Yeti. The only uh, one who after like, his kid died, yeah, in particular, yeah. Like that's the one, the one 
person, half person, mm-hmm. who has like a motivation and an arc within this. I would argue. I would argue because uh, there's the group of students, there's the group of capitalists, there's the group of the villagers. The Yeti stands alone, and also uh, the one like rebel lady who yeah. tried to like defy her village and like be kind to outsiders. She stands alone as well because she's rejected. Uh, their fates are intertwined. Uh, we come back to our to our uh, uh, plucky teens, uh, and they're, they're not; they're like in their twenties, but whatever. Um, students, they're students. Um, and they start piecing together that shit's gone down. Uh, and that's when the Yeti shows up and the Yeti kidnaps the other girl. Yeah. Uh, the implication without ever being explicitly stated is, uh, he's lonely and he doesn't have a kid anymore Mm. and there are no other Yetis. Very dark. Uh, they run off to rescue her. They team up with our heroine. Uh, and they find their way into the Yeti's cave. The Yeti's cave is full of bones. Mm-hmm. Uh, they realize that this guy is the last of the Yetis. And then they find in the cave poisonous mushrooms. And they immediately say, oh, well, of course, they ate all the poisonous mushrooms and that's why they died. And I'm like, that's a bit of a leap. Because, A, you don't know when these things die they're just bones yeah maybe the mushrooms grew after uh secondly um animals might not have like higher human intelligence but i'm pretty sure that they don't just eat something they know kills other animals like if they if they kept like if there was like okay well all the other animals ate these berries and they died don't just eat poisonous food yeah like if they see like oh there's a reason why poisonous food like, it, it often smells different, it looks different, it's a signifier, and even animals tend to learn not to eat that. So I'm pretty sure after a couple of the Yetis ate the mushrooms and died, some of the Yetis would probably go, mm, let's, let's not. Mm. Because we also, know that, <laughs> we also know that the Yetis are reasonably intelligent. Mm. You know, they're not necessarily geniuses, but they're reasonably intelligent. So... It strikes me as they need to come up with some justification and they just kind of throw it in there. Mm. It's pretty thin, though. Um, And, uh, yeah, and then the Yeti shows up. They fire at the Yeti. That was a mistake. Uh, The lady runs at the Yeti and they fight, they fight, they fight, and then they fall down a ravine and die. Yep. And I'm like, why did she have to die? What, what, Again, I, no, this is this yeah. is a bleak world of no heroes. Exactly. Well, th- I, that's yeah. the conclusion I eventually came to. But my initial thought is, did I miss something? Because oftentimes in, in a story, mm-hmm. a character who meets an unfortunate end or a character who meets a celebratory end, there's something the filmmaker is saying with that. They did something that is worth being punished for. They did something that is worth rewarding. Yeah. What did she do? And I keep thinking about it. I'm like, Nothing really. She was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, it's just a depressing horror. So, movie sometimes ending. good people die, yeah. especially in horror movies, yeah, and yeah. where the the monster is harmed, yeah. and that gives the monster license to harm the world in return. Yeah. The the good and the bad are nothing to the monster. Generally speaking, yeah. Um, which is weirdly forward for uh, Ishiro Honda, who wouldn't start putting stuff like that into like 
into the Godzilla movies mm-hmm. for like another six or seven years. Yeah, yeah. Early, I'm telling you, it, the, it doesn't feel it doesn't feel even more than disconnected. That. It'd be like, yeah, it would be like the mid '60s. Yeah, it doesn't feel completely disconnected from the Godzilla movies. It just has a very different tone. Mm. Um, and at that point, we cut back to our framing device. Ever they were telling the reporter uh, their story, and the reporter goes, "Huh." And then the credits roll. And mm-hmm. I'm like, why did we need that framing device? It added nothing. There's no, no one adds a perspective. Mm-hmm. There's no twist. Well, it's, it's, it's just, it's just to show like how disconnected the modern world is from these tragedies and horrors. I guess. I feel like it maybe, it, maybe a little... it's a, a way to sort of like cushion the blow a little bit. Yeah, maybe. Like, like we're not there with it. It's like, this already happens. Mm-hmm. We can sort of look at it a little bit more objectively. Maybe. Like, I don't know. Like, the idea of the story, of a horror story being told secondhand, um, I mean, that that's the epistolary, that's Dracula mm. does it's that. Lovecraft uh, does that. Lovecraft yeah. does that a lot as well. And it gives you sort of, if we are intended to associate with the person listening, uh-huh. uh, then we are questioning what we're hearing. And we're saying to ourselves, is this true? Because it's a fantastical tale. But there are other ways to do it. In the interview with a vampire, Kristen Slater is interviewing Brad Pitt. Right. We don't give a shit about Christian Slater. He's not. He's an excuse <laughs> to explain. Doesn't he die at va- the end of that movie? He, he yeah. gets turned into a vampire by Lestat. Right. Um, the, the, he is not there to add meaningful perspective. He is literally there to give Brad Pitt an excuse to speak didactically about vampirism. Because yeah. if he were talking to another vampire, he wouldn't have to explain shit. He's just there to have explained stuff to. And you know what? It, with the explanation is interesting enough, you can get away with that. Mm. But generally speaking, that person either provides a, a, a level of questioning where we find the story to be subjective. Or perhaps they question it too much and then we're inclined to believe the tale. Yeah. Uh, or they offer some kind of outside perspective as well or their response to it matters uh the ending of you ever see the man who shot liberty valance no i'm not gonna okay well um, i feel like that one's i know liberty valance gets shot that's true uh there is uh uh the ending of the man who shot liberty valance uh you know there's a the character dies and they're all talking about the events of their life and then it turns out that something that everyone assumed was true was not true I won't tell you what it is or how the context works. Uh, and at the end, the people surviving decide whether or not to reveal that lie. And that decision tells you a lot about their ethics, their morality, you know, what's more important, the truth or what came of the lie. Mm. Life of Pi works in a very similar way because like, there's a character who goes up to this guy and the guy's like, I've heard that you have a tale. Yeah. That, and at the end of this tale you will believe in God, which is, yeah. a, you know, that's a, a big a, sell. A big challenge, yeah. Yeah, and at the end, the actual resolution of that is a little unexpected. Yeah. And yet the person's response to deciding whether or not they believe in God or for, mm. and for what reason uh, is telling about their personality. Yeah. And it tells, it tells you a lot about the audience as well. What do you choose mm. to accept in that context? Uh, and here, guys, like, ah, oh. and then the movie's over. <laughs> it's a little odd and perfunctory to me. Um, setting aside a lot of the cultural signifiers, which I cannot speak to, 
and I will yield the floor on that. Um, this is a mean little horror movie. It's it's yeah. more cynical than I'm used to yeah. from Mishiro Honda. Now let, let's think of the original Godzilla though, which he just had just finished making. Yeah, that's a very that's also film. a very bleak movie. Yeah. Um, it's a movie that is actually talking about nuclear devastation very directly. It's talking mm-hmm. about the result of these nuclear tests. Talking about nuclear proliferation, the 50s, and yeah. how it might be an endless and how, cycle, and, yeah, and how this, that is. this idea that in order to destroy the destruction, we have to just be more destructive. It is this kind of mm-hmm. endless cycle of human misery. Yeah, at the end it's, when Godzilla dies, it's not heroic. No, it's like oh shit, but yeah, but what do we have to do? It's like a, it's this? it's you know, a disaster. Imagine if the monster should have been yeah. survived, but it's not the monster's fault, and we became the yeah, assholes. But we did save the day, and I'm so conflicted. It, it, it's a disaster movie. Like uh, we can save these people, but we have to build a bridge of human bones. Like yeah. it's fresh ones too. Yeah, like we like, have to rip them out of people and you know, yeah. save these other people. Like, so, Jesus, that's not great. Uh, it, it, that's not an upbeat movie. It's not a not a hopeful movie. It's kind of odd that people go back to that original and still like can form any kind of bond between that and the ones that were to come later. Where this is the same series where he fought Gigan for God's yeah. sake. Uh, I, I would argue so that the ma- reason maybe, why they're able to do that is because it's literally a different Godzilla. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I think, well, I think also, if they hadn't killed Godzilla at the end of Gojira. Yeah that through line would be completely impossible. But I can see a definite change in mood in the director and the kinds of uh, stories that he wanted to focus on. In the mid-50s, maybe Ishiro Hondo was personally uh, wounded by these ideas of nuclear tests and Mm -hmm. was really kind of... I mean, the war was only a decade old at that point. It ended just like a decade prior. Um, He he remembered it. Yeah. Fast forward another decade, it's like, mm. okay, I'm, I've, I've told that part of the story, now I want to tell stories about mm. other monsters. Look, and, and storytellers, artists, people, mm. they do change. Some people say people don't change. They do. It's often just rather subtle. And people cool off after a while. And the things that you were passionate about, you might still believe, but now you don't have like the same fire in your belly about it. Mm. Or maybe you calm down a bit and you take on a lot, a little bit more of a, a relaxed view uh, to the world. Maybe yeah. your priorities change as events in your life alter. A lot of people change dramatically after they have children, for example. Their, their needs and their concerns and their uh, anxieties are very, very different than they were a couple of years ago when they didn't have another life to care for. I do not know enough about Ishiro Honda's life to speculate on the specifics of that, but I know enough about people and I know enough about filmmakers with very long careers to know that attitudes, styles, interests, tones do shift. And sometimes it's difficult to tell in the moment, but often we look back and we say to ourselves, you know... Okay, so Spielberg was going through something, you know, in like the 2000s. Because mm-hmm. Minority Report and Munich are very different <laughs> entities than Hook okay. and Always. Yeah, right, right. He's a different guy. He's clearly changed somewhat. And then he went through his like, a lot of his like non-biographical movies in the last 10 years feel kind of insincere. You know, like Ready Player One doesn't even feel very much like a Spielberg movie. And yet, like, 
The Post, Lincoln. Mm. These seem to be the kind of things he's far more interested in now. They, they, yeah, yeah. they have a different level of uh, uh, sort of dramatic investment, maybe. I don't know, maybe I'm projecting. But it does seem like he's a different, uh, different storyteller. And we've seen Ishiro Honda evolve just through the Godzilla movies. Um, was Half Human canceled too soon? No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> that's our other podcast. Half Human is it's it's a bit it's dour, it's bleak, it's slow moving. It's yeah. not really enjoyable. It doesn't feel like any of the the kaiju movies we've been watching. No, it's not structured the same. It has yeah this really oblique story. the The characters are like apart from like the one rebel. Yeah. Uh, there, there isn't, and and the villain, I guess, there isn't really a like a human character that stands out. No. But not in that Godzilla way where we get to sort of highlight the mayhem of the monster because the monsters are sort of lurking around the edges as yeah, well. We, we don't really get to know the monsters terribly well either. Again, this feels like a weird hybrid of like the early safari pictures. Yeah. That were like very popular in like the twenties and the thirties. Uh, and then, like, the early universal horror movies, like the pre-code ones, yeah. that were a little meaner. Uh, that's where I feel like this tone is. It just feels like an uh, uh, an homage to something a little older, mm-hmm. a little harsher. Uh, it's an interesting watch. It's, and I'm glad it's, I saw it's interesting. It's, it's interesting to sort of ponder and think about. Yeah. I, I wish I... Great, though. I feel like I'm missing out on what this movie is sort of getting at, other than sort of these bleak themes of... You know, humanity infiltrating nature and nature murdering them, and they murder nature, and just everything's dead. Yeah, uh, which you know, fine. Hmm. It's, it's a fine, fine thing to make a film about, I suppose. Yeah. Well, uh, in any case, that is it for Thank Godzilla. It's Friday. Next time on Thank Godzilla, it's Friday. Godzilla is back. That's right. After in fact, uh, it's the return of Godzilla. It's the return of Godzilla. He's taken a bit of a hiatus. We will be talking about the uh, first film in the Heisei era in which Godzilla literally returns. And he's like, hey, what I miss? And everyone's like, oh, it's the it 80s is. now. A bunch of stuff happened. And, and I believe this is a, a sequel, one of the early instances mm-hmm. of a sequel that ignores the other sequels. Mm-hmm. Like it's a, a reboot, a direct sequel to the original. Yeah. I've actually never seen this one, so I'm actually very excited about it. Uh, and and this, in fact, this whole era of Godzilla is a little unknown to me. Yeah, the 80s and 90s are a, a pretty interesting time because you got to see special effects sort of evolve. Uh, you got to see storytelling turn into something really kind of a lot more action-packed. Mm. I think the Heisei era is a lot more action movies, mm. whereas the you know the Showa era was clearly monster movies. Well, there were, initially it was kind of a horror vibe, and then it turned into more of like a fight movie series, like a wrestling mm-hmm. uh, a match, uh, almost a ton to it. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how it evolves. Uh, these movies are a little hard to find, and I apologize for that. Uh, we encourage everybody to watch along with us. We know that some of them are more readily available yeah, than others. Um, the Criterion Collection was really good about restoring and having the uh, Showa era available, but yeah. that's where they wanted to stop. The majority was, um, of the films that we've reviewed so far, a few of the a few of the more esoteric ones that are like off to the side weren't on Criterion, but most were or on HBO Max as well. Uh, yeah, here we're going to start doing a little more hunting. Uh, we may or may not... Uh, we have not decided yet because we haven't actually watched them again yet, in your case. Um, split uh, Return of Godzilla and Godzilla 1985 into two different episodes. It'll depend on how different those versions of the film are. Yeah. Um, so stick around for that. We'll make that decision later. Uh, if you're listening to this episode, 
uh, on the main feed of Critically Acclaimed, the free feed on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you might find it, uh, our patrons get to listen to episodes one week in advance. So the episode about Return of Godzilla and or uh, Godzilla 1985, that is already on the Patreon page right now. Mm. Uh, And you can listen to it then. Uh, You'll also listen to all of our new episodes without advertising, which, you know, bonus. Uh, And... uh, you also get a ton of exclusive podcasts because we have commentary tracks. We have our Star Trek podcast, All Our Yesterdays. We review every single Star Trek episode in order. We're about to do uh, record a new episode of one of our favorite podcasts, Only the Best, uh, where we review every single uh, film ever nominated for Best Picture. Uh, I think we're about to do the Best Picture nominees of 1954. Fif- yes. The, the award ceremony is 55. These are the yeah, films of 1954. Uh, yeah. yeah. This is um, the... Yeah. It was the year on the waterfront one best picture. Yeah. We're going to be reviewing all five of those movies, some of which are better remembered than others, uh, in a couple of days. Uh, so stick around for that, uh, and um, and a lot more things as well. So thank you to all of our patrons. Without you, we could not exist. It means a lot to us. Uh, if you want to talk about anything we discussed in this episode, do you know more, some stuff about Half Human that we don't? It's not a, little, a little insight would help us. It's on not this a particularly one, yeah. well chronicled film compared to a lot of the other movies that we've covered here. We tried to do a little digging, but we can only dig up so much. Uh, so if you have some additional contacts, some additional information, trivia, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Yeah, send us a physical letter to the Critically Acclaimed Network. P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Uh, and we're on the social medias at Critic Acclaim. I am at William DeBiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And until next time, my friends, rock. Rawr. <laughs>